0: You want them to be doing business with you because it's a wonderful experience, not because it's a great product and it's an affordable price. That is an old way of competing and you're going to run your company into the ground if you do it that way. So don't be afraid to stand up, to be vulnerable, to show different sides of yourself in a way that connects to your customer more than ever before.
1: Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Fuck Plan B, how to scale your technology business faster and achieve plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking to the effervescent Hillary Corner. Hillary's based in Austin, Texas. She's an author, a speaker, and has a coaching consulting business. What she does is she helps mid market clients to re engineer their customer experience to be human. She typically says she looks at a client and they've got nine touch points, not that are important to the company but that when they do some work, they can identify nine touch points that are important to their customer and that those touch points might be different to their competitors. And then what you're trying to do is you're trying to identify those nine points that are most important to a customer as part of their customer journey. And there might be three pre-sale, then three as part of delivery and then three post-sale. And you're trying to say, how can we make these more wow? How can we, to, I suppose, steal a phrase from one of our earlier guests, how could you make these talk triggers? or at least one of them a talk trigger. So she says some great examples with us. We also talk a little bit about how she started on this journey. She was the, in fact, her first book's called One White Face. She was the first Caucasian and the first woman in Asia for Toyota working in the um, their dealer network across Asia. So we talk a little bit about that and what is the beginning of her journey. And then we... We go through some great examples that she's got, either that she's come across as herself as a consumer or from examples from her clients. Uh, Fantastic conversation. It is a little bit of a longer episode. Uh, As I said, she's effervescent and she just got so much good stuff to share. It just seemed a shame to stop early. So hopefully you enjoy it as much as I did. I thought it was cracking. Thank you.
0: I am the former senior executive officer for Toyota Motor Asia Pacific out of Singapore, and now I am a keynote speaker, best-selling author, and firm uh, CEO of the firm Corner Partners out of Austin, Texas.
1: And what does your what does your firm do?
0: Our mission is to humanize business. So, using my background in operations and process improvement, as well as CX and customer experience design, I work with companies primarily small to medium sized businesses around 50 to hundred million to help humanize their customer experience to drive better margins to the bottom line.
1: Okay. I'm, i taking you back to your, um, your time in Singapore. What, what, what happened? How did you, where did you end up? Who were you working for? What's the, what's the backstory to that and your book?
0: Yeah. So, um, I am a, little girl from Columbus, Ohio that grew up with a grandma who spent seven years in Japan. So as a child, I was always curious about the culture and about the language. And it wasn't until I got to university that I was able to start studying it, fell in love with it, totally geeked out in all my classes. And um, after university, I went straight to Asia with the with the goal of working abroad, um, which is highly rare for an American, much less a <gasps> but I had already lived in Japan. I had already been on a 14 hour plane. It wasn't really that scary. And this was before 2008, the financial crisis. So, you know, it was a different world back then. Facebook was one year old (laughs) to give some context. Um, smartphones weren't around. I had a black and white Nokia phone. Uh, sounds like you can probably go ahead and guess my age, (laughs) Um and so I went abroad and I ha- I was determined to to start my career internationally and I did. I secured a position with Toyota Motor Asia Pacific um straight out of the straight out of the gate and um, my responsibility was to streamline the principles around Kaizen and those philosophies across the dealership networks in the South Pacific. So what does that actually mean? If you know anything about Kaizen and process improvement, you know, it's been huge buzzwords over the last decade with Lean and Six Sigma, but it's essentially what made Toyota really famous, which is how do we drive improvement across the whole customer experience to keep loyal customers for life? It's just a philosophy and a commitment towards customer centricity.
1: And driven by, rather than driven from the top down, driven from the dealers, the dealers bottom up?
0: Yes. So this is one of the biggest myths in process improvement and why McKinsey just came out with a statistic a couple years ago that said 80% of lean projects in the US fail Mm -hmm. because lean projects in the West have been articulated as a way to reduce costs or as a way to increase efficiency and productivity. But very often that's at the detriment of the very people who either execute on the process or the process serves the customer, the employees are the customer. So you can build a, a process that's more efficient but it might be a more pain in the ass. It might be demoralizing. Um, I know a big firm here in Austin, Texas that hired a Kaizen consultant. They came in and they increased their email efficiency and they, they drove the numbers. It was incredible results. But what happened? You totally insulted these people that make six figures because you came in and taught them how to do email better. And they lost half of their A player consultants. So, like we do these huge initiatives to reduce costs, but sometimes they're not actually improving the lives of the people they serve. And that's the biggest thing that's been lost from the original philosophies of Kaizen. It should be to improve the lives of the people going through the process.
1: Uh, The employees and the customers.
0: Both. Yeah. Yeah. And or, you know, sometimes both, sometimes one or the other. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, for several years, I ran a team of 10 people across 14 Asian countries, was the first female in the region to do Kaizen on behalf of Toyota. And I was the first Caucasian in an office of 250 people. So at any given point in time, there were eight to 12 languages being spoken in a meeting, was highly diversified. And why me? Uh, That's the question I get a lot. Um, I was uniquely positioned. I I knew the language, I knew the culture since the time I was born. And I loved the culture. I had a commitment to the culture. And then meanwhile, Toyota had a bit of a predicament at the time. They were managing one of the most important markets in the world for the company, especially once the financial crisis hit. Asia became the number one most important market for Toyota, even on top of the U.S. And what they were doing at that time is they were bringing in expatriates from Japan to lead these Kaizen initiatives, and they were failing. They knew Kaizen. They knew it like the back of their hand. They knew the techniques, if you've heard of any of them, Kanban system, just in time. I mean, it's just the Toyota production system. Uh, But they were failing because they couldn't earn the trust of Gemba. Gemba is a Japanese word for frontline. And so, um, you know, you had these Japanese, very intellectual, very experienced um, uh, professionals that were, have been around since the beginning, but they were doing business the Japanese way in a totally different culture. I mean, in the South Pacific, every country is vastly different. They speak different languages, they eat different foods. They show up differently at work. And so even though they had the know-how and the tools and the techniques and the technology, they were dropping the ball on actual execution because at the end of the day, it's the human element. It's how do you earn trust? How do you get people to buy into the concepts? How do you get them to learn? You know, it's a train-the-trainer model. So Uh it's not you doing it for them. I can go into a company any day and tell them exactly what they need to be doing differently. But the moment I walk away, things are going to fall flat on their face. Right. And that's where I was uniquely positioned because as an American, I was very likable as a woman, I was very nurturing. So I garnered trust faster than the Japanese did in just in general, um, having this unique merge between East and West philosophies and culture and intellect, uh, I was able to dance between the two very well.
1: Was there a problem being female in some of those other East Asian countries?
0: was there a problem? It came up every now and again. Um, fortunately I know how to manage it very well and I use it to my advantage when I needed to. And then I just called it out when I didn't. And then there were times and places where, you know, it wasn't my place to call it out. And I just had to let it go because I realized that I was the outsider and I wasn't going to change a whole country. Uh And so, um, since my time at Toyota, I've come back to the States. I, I've been writing, speaking, and um, consulting on the topic of improving customer experience designs and uh, for the last 10 years. I wrote my first book about the time, my time working for Toyota. That's actually being adapted into a screenplay, and I got sponsored by Toyota to do a year and a half long book tour. And now I'm working on my next book, which is The Human Elements, which is uh, the counterintuitive way to compete in a new era.
1: Okay. That first book's called One White Face.
0: My first book is called One White Face, which is a quote from my Japanese boss. He said, I hope you realize you're the one white face in the company.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When you were doing, when were you doing those uh, projects in Asia, what, what type of things were you doing? What, what were the types of project work that you were doing and what was the impact on the customer experience for those dealerships?
0: Great, great question. Um, One of the projects I worked on was introducing the first small car ever into India to compete directly with Tata Motors. What does that mean from an operations or customer experience design perspective? If you imagine uh, you're only selling three products in one country and they have a specific type of customer segment. And at that time for Toyota, it was very expensive cars like sedans, four by fours. And Toyota is a very expensive brand in India. Uh um so you're talking like high customer segment people who pay in cash people who don't even come to the dealership to pick up the car they send their assistants those are the types of uh Toyota customers back then and they were introducing a small car that was a totally different type of customer segment lower end uh they needed insurance they needed financial approval they were coming in with their whole family of eight people because it was the biggest decision of the year to buy a car it's a big deal it's a very expensive thing, and you know, people forget, but India is still a third world country. And so, what does that mean when it translates to operations and customer experience? Is that they have different needs. They have different stages of their journey from the very, very beginning at the stage of prospecting to contract signing to, to product delivery to follow-up. The way you talk to them is different. Who you're talking to them, that, who you're talking to is different, the frequency that you're talking to them is different. The entire experience is different. So we went in and had to essentially redesign the whole way that the salespeople from the very beginning of the experience all the way to the delivery people to the service workshops were dealing with these customers. And then it just so happens at the time that the company was also implementing a big ERP software with the dream of standardizing sales. It was like the brainchild of Toyota-san himself. And so we were integrating the technology, which is part of the demand for humanization, which I'm excited to talk about further.
1: Okay. Go on then. Let's let's dive into that. What uh, what yeah. does humanization of, of process design or could they hope humanization of process mean?
0: Yeah. So we live in a weird world now where we literally have apps that help us control our apps. Like <laughs> what is going on? Oh, humans are, you could say lost. Uh, we are at a very unique uh, milestone in our Civilization, where you're seeing an intersection between humans, work, and culture. So humanity, as we know it, is changing. We've become more worldly, more cultured than ever before. Americans in 1990 only four percent had passports. Now 42 percent have passports. What does that mean? Americans are getting, at least specifically, you know my demographic, what I know to be true. We're getting married later. We have more disposable income. We're desiring experiences, not things. We're becoming more wiser. We're becoming more open-minded. God bless America, finally. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that because I've lived abroad. I know the stereotype.
1: You might fit in in your own country soon.
0: <laughs> so this is what I call the human-digit divide or the digital-human divide. Either way, we have technology taking off at speeds that humans can't keep up with. To the point we're actually dehumanizing ourselves. If you've been in that situation where you're at the airport and they say, the system won't let me do that. The other day, I live in a sky rise in Austin, uh, Texas in downtown. And the other day, the woman literally said to me, well, you don't understand the algorithm. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to a robot. We're triangulating ourselves between person, process owner, and technology as if it's a person. And it's a big problem. Anyone who's watched The Social Dilemma, you walk away at that movie. Uh, it's going viral right now in, in the U.S. You walk away with that movie with anxiety. How do you get control over this? And so it's not that technology is bad. Technology has done incredible things for society and helped our, our companies run with machine-like efficiency. Okay? That's great until it has its faults. As we always said at Toyota, we should use the the right tool at the right time at the right place. You're not going to use a screwdriver when you need a hammer, right? And we got to look at technology the same way. We have pushed technology to the point where it's made these amazing operations. And as a result, we've actually pushed ourselves away from our customer. We've automated the shit out of our businesses to the point where we barely talk to people. And then we take pride in it. But the irony is like when I deal with some of my clients, I see time and time again, that it's like they're making it hard for their customer to give them money. They're making it hard for their customer to actually get in touch with someone. They're making it hard for their customer to actually like, close a deal. And the funny thing is like, we, sometimes in our automations, if they're used incorrectly, they actually build barriers. Now, here's what's happening on the other side of this digital human divide. You have the human that's becoming more conscious. But not only that, they're becoming more informed more educated, they know what automation is now. Five years ago, 10 years ago even, they they definitely didn't know what automation was. The average consumer now knows what an automated email is. They know what the unsubscribe button is and they're not afraid to use that. Meanwhile, they're also more empowered. It's been never easy, it's never been easier to jump ship to another company, insurance agency, financial advisors. No one cares anymore because it's like you all use the same technology. The technology is actually becoming homogenized. You're seeing the same feature set in CRMs, ERPs. It's all the same because it's moving faster than us. There's a great quote from Jack Ma at the World Economic Forum in 2018, where he says, my biggest fear for the world is the way we're handling education. And I equate education with professional development because it's uh, being experienced at the same time. And he said, the problem with education right now is we're teaching kids things that robots can do and can do better than us. And the, the risk is that if we're strengthening skills in humans, that eventually machines can do faster and better than us, then where, where is that going to leave us? And the woman poses a question back to him and says, well, what should we be teaching people? And this is where he drops the mic. And he says, we need to be teaching people human skills. The things that robots can't do. Collaboration, original thinking, creativity, teamwork, art, music. Breaking
1: rules, empathy.
0: Breaking rules, empathy, listening, all of this. And so it's so exciting because the the counterintuitive thing is I don't believe technology is the way companies can compete in the next era of business. I think technology is becoming an expectation. And so if you compete based on product set, feature set, or price, you're going to run your company into the ground because someone's going to show up the next day with something better. But if you commute, if you compete with the human element, how the joy it is to work with your company, how you seek to understand the people you're serving, how you deliver above and beyond their needs, how you have empathy for the struggles they're going through. As the example you, you shared with me just before we started today about working from home. like that's, that's what bridges connections and trust that have been disconnected because of technology.
1: Well, it's interesting. A, a couple of weeks ago, on the, on the podcast I interviewed a guy called Dan Garrett, who's got a UK startup called Fairwill. And so they, they're in the death tech space. And so they've managed to capture 10% of the UK will writing market because they obsess about two things, customer experience and hiring great people. And so they, they use automation because you can create a will in 10 minutes. But if you get stuck click this button talk to somebody ring us they're emailing you all the time saying you've got stuck can we help you because they realize that having having the people you know if you if you can get through the automation on your own then it's then it's great but at some point you might get stuck and the most frustrating thing in the world is to go down a a black hole. I mean, I find it, I find it all the time on answering machines, you know, on these automated answering <laughs> machines, you know, you're 10 minutes in and then all of a sudden it says, can you enter your 16 digit pin number? And you go, I, <laughs> I, 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 I can't. And then it says goodbye. And you think 20 minutes, like And yep.
0: if you, if anyone's who's listening that wants to have like a, a quick pulse of how human they are, I have a quiz and it's 12 questions. Yes or no. And it's basically How human of a company are you? And one of them, to your point, is how hard is it to get a hold of a real person in your company? And it's not that we need to personalize. It's not Personalization is not the point. The point is, if you think of the person you're serving and you think of their experience, where do you know it to be true that having access to a real person would be valuable to them? and then design it so that it is to the point you're making maybe earlier on in that will writing experience they don't need to talk someone at the front end they don't need to talk someone at the back end but that company very intentionally said you know what what we know to be true about our customers is about like maybe 5 minutes into the application they get blocked and we just can't consider all of the limitless ways that they could get blocked because it's human it's the human element and so they design that very purposely and that's why it's very effective
1: yes have you got some what sort of examples have you got from clients that you work with in the u.s where you've you've gone in and just banged your head on the desk in despair but then fixed something (laughs) that everybody's happy about
0: how did you know what i do every day Um, gosh, I have so many fun examples. Well, I'll share with you one of the simplest examples that is the most playful and really hits home. And um, there's a, a very swank, um, resort based out of Phoenix, Texas. They just expanded to Austin and they just expanded to Massachusetts called Miraval. Very, very expensive. Oprah goes there. Um, they just had a huge, uh, after COVID they had a huge sale. So my husband and I booked a week there. It was amazing, but what did they do? So, Mirval, if you know anything about it, they actually are a digital-free property, which why is it that we're seeing all these trends around essentialism, unwavering focus, anxiety, isolation, people that we're realizing and becoming more conscious around the impact tech has on us? And so now we're trying to get a hold of it, right? So you're going to see more of that. Uh, You're also going to see a lot more humor in the next year because people are sad, people are lonely. People don't want to watch documentaries that are deep and thought-provoking. They want to watch funny things. So the more you can integrate humor in the next year into your operations, especially the boring, antiquated industries, absolutely. Why I love this example is because it comes from the hospitality industry. And I think a lot of B2B professional services, super antiquated industries like financial services, construction, education, can learn so much from hospitality. When you check into Miraval, they give you a small linen bag for your phone. But the best part about it is they call it your cell phone sleeping bag. And as you check in, they say, okay, here's your cell phone sleeping bag. Now listen, as you know, we're a digital-free property. That's why you came here. So I need you to turn your phone off and put it in the sleeping bag. And you're like a kid. I mean, this, this is a very expensive resort to afford to go here. These are, you know, top yeah. dog folks, right? And suddenly you become like a little child and you're like, oh my gosh, do I? Okay, fine. Here's my phone. And it's this delightful, playful thing. Okay, so here's the point. What could they have done the opposite? It would have been out of compliance. Okay, sir, as you know, this is a digital free property. So here's where I need you to put your phone away. And they made it, they would have made it very controlling and like makes it feel like I'm losing something rather than I'm getting something. Yep beautifully done flawless. I use it in all my keynotes. Now I bring the sleeping bag. I've told so many freaking people about this because I I remember it. It was such a moment of intentional design for pennies on the dollar in terms of cost. No automation can do what they did in that moment emotionally. Another example, I just signed a publishing deal for my new book. I switched publishers, super controversial. Don't want to go into that, but, uh, this new publisher Uh, I paid in full and I got this email from the accountant. I had had no interaction with the accountant and this email was only like three sentences long and it had a GIF in it. And it literally said something along the lines of, listen, aren't you tired of receiving those invoice paid emails that are all full of corporate jargon? We are too. It's really important for you to know that there's real people behind the money that you're spending. And we believe in the message that you want to write in your book. And then it's a GIF. Of this woman, again, I've never met her, shaking her hands like "raw, rah, great job. And with a pink background. Now, there's a few things I want to pull, draw attention to here. One, the conciseness. Two, one of the traits of human citric companies that we talk about is that using original language. I have a general rule of thumb in my life. I never talk in cliches because it doesn't make people think for themselves. You could They could have said, we're so proud of you looking forward to your book. Looking forward to your whatever is the worst statement ever. Don't ever use it. It doesn't mean anything to anyone. So it was short. It was concise. It was original language. It was playful. So many times in business, we're, we're, we have this old school mentality that we have to have like this button up performance. You know, we have to always be on our best. We can't show one single flaw. And that's just not the way the world is going. We're seeing that if you look perfect, the trust is not there. I want to see a side of you that's imperfect. I want to see you admit a flaw, be transparent and show another part of your identity. And so you have this publishing agency that's very successful, be fun. And I really believe that leaders are yearning for that ability to just be themselves and then be themselves in their company. And then of course the pink background, I just loved it because it was it was like, it was a shock. It was, it was a moment of like, Yeah. Why does it have to have a normal background? Like, that's great. And I still remember that exact image. Had she had a white background or her desk in the background, I would have never remembered it. And that is what intentional human customer experience design does. This is not fluff. This is not soft. This is how do you build connections and bonds of trust so that you speed people through their journey faster with you, so that you make a quicker sales cycle so that you get agreements signed faster because you simplify them. Because you you made the onboarding and the kickoff experience so delightful that they tell their friends and their peers. There's so much that can be done with customer experience design. It's just, it tends to be that businesses focus on, okay, just sell, set up the automations, push people through the numbers and then deliver the product and service. But if you make a human experience design, you get more than that you have fun you have purpose and you spark memories in people that make you remarkable worthy of remarking over and that's where the referrals come that's where the repurchase comes and et cetera.
1: well it, and if and if you tell everybody seems now to know what the uh, r naught number is you know but you know the thing a, a virus will go exponential if you infect 3 people and your story will go viral if you tell three people. So your, you know, your, mm-hmm. your, uh, cell phone sleeping bag story, you know, you tell that at a conference, you were like, you're a super spreader and the whole story, the whole story goes viral in a good way. Hopefully
0: Mirgaal sends me a free trip
1: <laughs> Yeah, totally. But you know what, if they're, if they're, yeah. um, but if they're, if they sort of social media is tied up in a human way, then they should spot people who do refer them and and yeah. and reward them in some way right even yes. that might even be playful right they might send you a sleeping bag for home for your phone or do you know what I mean there's you that there, you would you would, you would take you would take it on or, or even you somebody would do it inside their business just as a one-off it wouldn't need to be you know if you do it right and the guidelines are in place then it allows employees to behave independently and create an experience without it necessarily having to be something that needs to be
0: replicated for everybody. Yes. And here's a key point, Demet, because someone might be listening and thinking, well, yeah, that's great, but I don't have time to do that. Or how do you come up with that? And this, this, is, this is the heart of it all. If you look at your customer experience from endpoint to endpoint, um, on my website, there is something uh, cool, a tool that we use at Toyota that I use now with my clients. And it's the heart of all of this. We call it the customer for life cycle. If you just imagine a circle, it has three quadrants. You have pre-sales, post-sales, up to product and service delivered, and then everything afterwards, the second half of the circle is follow-up and repurchase. Every company has these three stages of their experience. If you look at your whole customer's experience from that first point of them researching companies and looking for you, whether you're a payroll company or a email service or a security guard management company, whatever you are, there's a point where they start looking for you And then there's the point where they agree to buy, they get delivered the service or product, and then you follow up and and there's some type of engagement after that. If you look at the whole customer experience, the key is to look specifically at what are the touch points that are priority to the customer, where in the experience matters most to the customer. And this is where I see companies fall short. They do things that they think are fun or playful or just for fun or a good idea. No, no, no. That's benefiting you as the company. That's not benefiting the customer. If you look at the experience, there's never more than nine touch points that are most important, three per stage. So if you're, if you're in the prospecting marketing say, stage, there's never more than three. The post-sales, everything from contract signing to product and service delivered, there's never more than three. And then everything after that, there's never more than three moments that actually matter the most to the customer. Then go make those human. Go make those more of a wow moment.
1: And how often do your clients know those nine before you go and talk to them? Never. <laughs> and are they different for, when, you, when you design them in your business? would your nine touch points be different to your competitors?
0: Great question. Yes and no. Could be.
1: Well, it's the reason when, when you were, when you were telling that, when you were talking there, two things just jumped out at me. One is I I, I went, I stayed in a hotel. This is a little while ago, but I stayed in Mm -hmm. a hotel and obviously they thought somebody had thought it would be useful for me to know that they had hoovered under the bed. So there was, so there, was, so there was a sign just, just under the edge of the bed, but you could see it if you, as you walked into the room and it said, Oh yes, we even hoover under the bed. Like it, 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 it had never even crossed my mind that, that, that cleaners wouldn't hoover under a bed. Right. But now, it's okay. So you've you've highlighted something that that has as of absolutely no interest to me, but the fact that you'd actually gone and done that meant that you'd gone through this process and you'd picked the wrong thing to focus on. Mm. And so so I was at, so I, I was I was struck by that. And then the other thing that uh you know you're there you are in, you're in um in Austin, Texas, and I spent a lot of my working career in San Antonio, and my hotel of choice in San Antonio is the Hotel Contessa on the Riverwalk. And my best experience from there, which and I've told this story many times when i've spoken on stages, is, is I rang down one morning and I said, "Look uh there's nothing on the breakfast menu that I'd like. Could I just have some uh, a fruit plate please, and some some plain yogurt and uh it being Texas, what I got was enough raw fruit for a family of five for a week and about a and about a gallon of yogurt and so uh and so the next day. Uh, Maria rang me and she said, uh, I was the lady who took your order yesterday. And she said, I just wanted to know what I had done wrong. She said, because your food came back from your room and it just looked like you hadn't touched it. Uh-huh. And I said, I've never been in a hotel before where somebody who worked back of house ever rang me up or cared. Nope, and, and, and so and so I just it, it's and it's that, you know, in that hotel, Maria cares enough that she wants to make sure that, you know, she was just she was just worried that somehow she hadn't served me the the, the way that I didn't that I'd intended it to. And it, and you just go, you can't buy. You can't buy that. Right. I, so I, I every time I'm in San Antonio, I go and stay there. Right. Boom.
0: Yeah. And this is the shit people want to track. You know, they're like, well, how worthy of an ROI is that? And it, that's just fucking yang energy. Sorry to cuss, But like, <laughs> I, I'm not going to try to prove you the value of that. If you don't know the value of that, then like go talk to someone else. You know, like uh, there's so many good examples. I do want to share an example that's not a hotel to give people like a piece of in- insight from a from a B2B or professional services or service-based industry perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, another th- great thing that I experienced recently um, I have plenty of bad experiences, but, um, another great thing was agreements. Why do I say this? Because everyone comes to me and they say, Oh, you do lean, you do lean, uh, help me reduce costs. And I'm like, no, I don't do lean. Actually lean did not come from Toyota. Lean came from a PhD student at MIT. And everyone needs to know that, um, I do not do lean, but totally thought three things at the same time. Let me go back to the story. The story is I was working with the client. Oh yeah, everyone wants to know how do you speed up your sales cycle or how do you reduce costs of delivery, right? Like increase efficiency and reduce costs of delivery of the service or product. So this is a great example of something you can do one time that can make a significant difference on your sales cycle lead time. And that is improving your freaking agreements. We make our agreements so intense, so hard to read, As I mentioned earlier, I just signed a new agreement with our Skyrise in downtown Austin, 50 pages long. Something's wrong with that. Something's wrong with that. My publisher's agreement was six pages long, and I paid five times as much money for my publisher than I do for my Skyrise. So what's the point here? When we talk about the customer's experience when they, if you think of your customer and you get them all riled up, you get them excited to do business with you, and then you give them a huge fucking agreement, what do you think that does? Do you think it speeds it up or do you think it slows it down? And what are we doing? We, we build this agreement out of fear. It's very fear-based, like, oh, I got to protect our company for every possible thing that could go wrong, even if it only ever happens once. And this is where standardization can go wrong. Um, You know, the world of Kaizen can go wrong because we standardize things and hope to prevent problems in the future. That's basic philosophy of Kaizen. But we standardize almost too much our agreements to the point you have a 50-page agreement with all these details that no one's ever going to read. No one reads contracts except me. I read every single contract that I sign. (coughs) Every single contract. (laughs) I know. Crazy, right? I refuse to sign a contract ignorantly. Um, So one of the things that you have to consider with your customer is that one of the most important things that they do with you, doesn't matter if you're a $5,000 contract, a hundred dollar contract, whatever, is sign that contract. It's a big deal for them. They're committing, they're, they're nervous and excited, and we make it really hard for people to give us money. So if you go and you look at your agreements, try to figure out how to humanize them. I saw recently an agreement that I signed that I signed they started, um, there's like the, the header of like page two was all, all the nonsense legalese you need to know, but then they simplified it. So the bullet, the paragraphs were only like three sentences long. And if you really look at your agreements, there's ways to simplify them. There's ways to shorten them. And there there's ways, as I said earlier, to use original language and talk to the person that's actually reading it. Um, this agreement literally made me laugh out loud. What did I? Not only did I laugh out loud, I followed up to them saying that's the best agreement I've ever signed. Then I went to LinkedIn, took a screenshot of the agreement, shared it on LinkedIn. I was like, please make better agreements. If you want people to give you money, stop making it so hard for them. Stop making it so rigid and robotic. And that's the nature of business right now. We, we use this machine learning and automation to make our businesses so operate with machine like efficiency so that we treat people like robots and you actually steal a part of the excitement away where i feel that see the most companies fall short is right after contract signing the kickoff they do great in sales they have a great experience and then they get to the kickoff and it's like all these onboarding emails and all this paperwork and it's all not streamlined it's very disparate and disjointed just like tech is right now and then and then you're wondering why you get a bad NPS score 90, 90 days in, or you're wondering why the customer doesn't renew. You took what was supposed to be the most exciting moment for them, and you made it miserable. That's the difference between a customer experience that's sufficient for the company and a customer experience that's human.
1: The, uh, the, <laughs> the best thing about, we, we bought a car last year, and, uh, you know, we had to Frankly, I would have sent somebody else to pick it up because I've got no emotional investment in 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 a new car. But not everybody's the same anyway. So they insisted that we went to go and pick it up and we went to pick it up. And so they bought it was actually my wife's car. So there were flowers for my wife and they had a sheet over it. And they did this Da-da, in the showroom and they pull the sheet off. But the best thing is they gave us they, the guy had worked out that we, we had two daughters. And so we got two teddy bears. One each for oh. them. So that absolutely made their day. So that was the best bit. Wow. Like the flowers, take it or leave it. The the big reveal, take it or leave it. The fact yeah. that the sales guy gave us two teddy bears rather than just one, because normally Brilliant. the thing would be car plus one teddy bear. But, you know, he, he he had kids himself and he knew that that would have been murder on the way home, deciding one who the got the bear.
0: Do, one of the things we do in the design and, um, during the process of working with my clients is specifically asked the question, how in these priority touch points, how can you make the customer feel more like a hero? And that is exactly what you said. That was perfect.
1: Well, I was just thinking there, you talked about the the contract. So there's the, the contract, obviously a touch point. And you were talking about making it easier for people to speak to you. Are there in that first three in the sort of pre-sales yeah. phase, are there, what, what other typical ones do you see? Ah, oh,
0: oh, so many good ones. Um, so the sales process is one that's always a mighty, mighty challenge. You know, how do you make that first contact? Um, I, 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 as much as you can, please use videos, like increase use of videos in your email contacts, whether it's loom video or any other type of like short link that you can include, um, and call it out. So one, some of the best sales emails I receive, cause I get so freaking many, just like you, I'm sure I love when they call it out, when they and this is one of the, one of the um, tactics that we use when we do these design workshops, but um, how can you get so in the head of your customer that you know the emotion they're feeling and you say it, you name it before they feel it? So for example, if I had opened an email and an email says, uh, you, you just attended this conference and you're probably already receiving 80 sales emails right now. Here's why we're different. I'd be like, all right, yeah, that's the truth. You know me, you see me, right? If Because that's what happens after conferences. You go to a conference, you don't know how your email got passed around. Suddenly you're getting all these emails <clears throat> that are all selling you something. So name it, call it out, call out the emotion. Don't be afraid of the emotion. Normally in sales process, what I see people do is they sell what? They don't ever connect to the human behind it. That's buying it. They just say, you know, it's easy to use. It's fast. It's affordable. It's efficient. And it's like, that's not why I buy anyone who's good in sales knows that there's the limbic brain and there's the neocortex and the neocortex understands the logic, the, what you're selling The limbic brain is what understands the emotion behind the sale. And that's what gets people to buy. Any good salesperson knows that. But we're so afraid of emotions. We're so afraid to like call it out because we don't want to be obtrusive or it's just uncomfortable. It's kind of scary ourselves. So name the emotion. Don't be afraid of it. Um, I also see in in the marketing process, incredible, incredible work being done by companies who are humanizing their drip campaigns. Similarly, it's like emails or follow-ups in a sales process, but differently, you're at a different stage of the customer experience. In a prospecting stage, they may not know who you are. So something to consider is at each stage of your customer experience, which generally we find it's between five to seven total, Mm -hmm. you have this this point in their experience where they're almost agnostic of industry. They're researching, right? They're looking around, they're searching. If you look at these questions, at these stages of the experience, consider what are the top two questions that they need answered at that stage and then say it. People are really afraid to lean in and just listen to the customer. But the irony is that you and your ivory tower, you don't have the answer. You're not your customer. At Toyota, we'd always say if we found ourselves in a meeting room where we were you know mind melding over something and stuck. we would go straight to the bottom line. I'm sorry, to the front line. We go straight to the Gemba to the customers and find out from our employees what they were saying because the frontline staff knew the employee, I'm sorry, the customers best. And so for the sales process, if you're looking at marketing, call out what they're thinking and say what they're wondering. If you're if your customers, every every, I'm sorry, every customer at the stage of prospecting is wondering. Why should I do business with you? What is it that you actually do? Um, How much do you cost? Like, don't be afraid to say those things. What I generally find is they just take content and they flood the marketplace with content in the sake of like producing content and generating SEO, right? But if you actually, instead of doing 100 blogs, did five blogs that actually spoke to the customer and what they wanted to hear, I bet you, I know because we've seen in results, that you get better results. So it's it's ironic the difference between doing good what's doing what's good for the company and doing what's good for the customer. And that's the design part.
1: I well it's interesting because I I would say when you say when I asked you how many of your clients when they start working with you know what those those high priority customer touches are and you said zero. Equally when I'm working with clients and we're looking at what job has your customer hired you to do for them i would mm-hmm. say the awareness of that is zero or close to zero as well and so they can't actually go on to answer those questions because they don't know enough about their customers because they don't really know why why they got they think they got why they got chosen but often in a be, in tech it, there's there's features and benefits and you know they, they they but they don't have an understanding of the emotional the emotional decision and therefore couldn't go and design a process that looks for those emotional touch points
0: yeah and generally those that are in this situation are selling to anyone they're like the guy in the street in new york city with his coat out saying which watch do you want yeah you know they will take any sale rather than the right sale and that's when you get refunds that's when you get a huge ar that's when you get Bad reviews, bad, not, you don't get testimonials. That's when you get cancellations. Like it's so important. The irony is when I think of customer experience, because I come from an operations background, I think of a manufacturing plant and you want to start the process with a high quality because as the process continues and that person goes through your experience, the more problems you have, the more convoluted it becomes. So you actually, one of the things I do with my clients is I always start at the front end of the experience. Because just like a funnel, if you get it wrong at the start, you're going to have bad defects coming through it. And that's where in the Toyota production system, the stop the line mentality came out. It was absolutely revolutionary to give the power to the employee to stop the whole production of the manufacturing plant because of one problem. It didn't make any sense because in the immediate, in the short term, You're stopping all the efficiency of the plant. But if you look at the problems that arise, if you let that defect continue, you make more defects. You make harder defects. You make more convoluted defects that have more problems, more difficult to solve. And that is a bigger problem than stopping the line, you know, temporarily to fix it. And that's the same thing with customer experience. It's a person going through experience, not a widget. But if you don't get it right early on and you let them get down further and further, that's when you have unaligned... Exp- I mean, I could tell you right away, we do something called categorization of issues with our customers. And that's standardizing the way you measure issues that come through your, your support line or your, your um, uh, customer experience once they become a customer. And it's almost always the same. It's misalignment of expectations, cost, quality of product or service. It's mostly... It's very similar And that's how you fix and minimize those issues. Is you actually start on the front end of the experience to solve problems better?
1: Okay, Um, Hillary. This has been fun. (laughs) I've I've got, I've got, I've got two questions for you that I always ask uh, everyone we get on the show. Um, What is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier?
0: That people just want to be people, and in business. There is this new awakening where no matter what age you are, this is not a generational thing at all. There's a new awakening that I want to be able to be my whole self. And businesses are the same. I want to be able to use humor. I want to be able to use sarcasm. I want to be able to cuss. I, want to, I mean, I got a question last week from a client who runs a commercial agency out of San Diego that's like, should we not have our employees be business casual anymore? Should we let them be casual? And I'm always like, what, what do you think? It's okay. You have permission to be yourself. We live in a world where people want you to be yourself. They are yearning for you to not be cold, heartless, and sterile. my favorite acronym ever. C-H-S. Write that shit down. Stop being cold, heartless, and sterile. People don't want it and you're pushing your customers away. If you treat your customers like a transaction, they will treat you like one. You don't want that. It's not good for the bottom line. You want trust. You want rapport. You want connection. You want them to be doing business with you because it's a wonderful experience, not because it's a great product and it's an affordable price. That is an old way of competing, and you're going to run your company into the ground if you do it that way. So don't be afraid to stand up, to be vulnerable, to show different sides of yourself in a way that connects to your customer more than ever before.
1: Ab um, and as well as possibly picking up a copy of uh, One White Face, what other business books have you read along the way that's had an impact on you that you think other people should read?
0: Great. So um, the first book that I would recommend that's not a business book but I think would be transformational for more business leaders to lead a uh, read is Man's Search for Meaning by Fr- Viktor Frankl. The beauty of that book. It's a 90-page book, super simple, very heavy. Don't read it on a weekday. Um, (laughs) But the beauty of that book is he was a psychologist in the Holocaust. And what he observed about humans during that time, which I'm not a history buff, so you would never guess that I would read something like this, but it's more an observation of humanity. And what he observed is that the people who lived and survived were the ones who always kept a bigger purpose in mind, always kept a bigger dream or a future state in mind. And so I I think there's a level of wisdom to that for business leaders of like, how can we, it's not how can we survive now, but how can we connect to our bigger call that people are yearning for? How can I wake up with more ease and joy every day instead of just putting out fires? And there is a way to do that. There is an answer. It's a different choice. It's not subscribing to busyness and productivity and efficiency, these short-term gains. It's a choice to do business in a different way. And that book was incredibly transformational. It helped me see that. In terms of something that I use personally to skim books that I find to be incredibly helpful, there's an app called 12 Minutes. Funny enough, it makes me efficient, but whatever. There's some irony to that. I understand Um, and the app gives 12 minute summaries of books. And so the reason I like that is generally speaking, I find that if I read a whole book, sometimes it just doesn't, I look back and I'm like, oh, I could have just read those few chapters. I didn't need all the other stuff. It was generally fluff or whatever. And so I think we're also going to see a big demand in funny enough, the quality of books going up because the supply is so high that the quality has dropped and the actual um, you know, acquisition of, pe- of readers is so nominal compared to 10, 20 years ago because the supply is so large. So I think you're going to see a big demand for more high-quality books, not necessarily bigger. That doesn't mean longer books, but books that actually get to the point or are more effective um, because people are just overwhelmed with books to read. So I find that that 12-minute app is pretty amazing.
1: Okay. Fab? Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Hilary. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today.
0: What was the one thing that resonated the most with you?
1: Um, I think the nine touch points that Mm. clients don't know what's important, the nine touch points that are important to their customer pre-sale, during the sales process, and then after sale. I think that, and then trying to find which of those you could do remarkably enough that people would talk about it and, Mm -hmm. and, and drive word of mouth designing that process. I think, um, I think we've had, I've worked with clients where, you know, we've either done it ourselves or I've worked with clients where there's been some serendipity, but there hasn't been, there hasn't been a process.
0: So I love that you call that out because companies see other companies and they think, oh, well, that was a great idea. I should copy it. But the beauty is that as Please don't copy other people's stuff. Like it, it doesn't always work and it won't stick. It needs to come from inside. You just got to carve out the space, just like Headspace. You got to do the deep work and then intentionally go to your people who know your customers best and ask them a, just a simple question. What would make this a more wow moment? Some of the traits when we talk about, if this is helpful, Dominic, as we wrap up, some of the traits we talk about being human are talking and acting like real people, getting rid of the corporate jargon wherever you can, being open, real, and even flawed. So admitting you made a mistake because it connects people, being transparent with those things. Don't be boring. You don't need to be boring. You can have fun. It's okay. You have permission. And lastly, empower individuals to be the brand. How can you figure out ways for your employees and customers to live out the brand, to live out your company. And that does not mean giving them a water bottle with your logo on (laughs) it.
1: Or or a A T-shirt that's only good enough to clean the car with.
0: No. A great example of this, there's a small chain in Austin, Texas. You might know it. Whataburger? Yep. Burger chain. They don't compete with McDonald's. They do their own thing. They're known for their mustard, for heaven's sakes. They started a product line, a merchandise line that had doormats for people's front doors that say, you better have Whataburger. Fucking brilliant. Brilliant. Now, I don't think this is making them loads of money. I can't imagine that they're selling millions of doormats a year. But what does it do? It makes loyal customers. Every person that walks through their door that visits them sees the doormat. Every time they walk out of their door, they're reminded of your brand Imagine the power of that.
1: Well, it, it, what it does is it signals to your neighbors and friends that you're in the tribe. Yeah. It's that sense of belonging. That's what people want.
0: It's a sense of belonging. And that's what people are yearning for. It was before COVID and it's been expedited by COVID.
1: Hillary, that's magic. Thank you very so much.
0: Fun. Oh, magic. I'm going to, I'm going to write that down and give, use you as a testimonial. <laughs> <laughs> If anyone's to find me, um, it's there's only one of me in the world. Fortunately, Hillary Corna, one L, not two. I'm Jinx for life. Um, I am the most personal on Instagram. I write the most on LinkedIn. Talk the most about business on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect there. And I am uh, most opinionated on Twitter. So have fun with that. But feel free to give me a message. Let me know that you found me through Dominic. I'll give you a shout out back and to Dominic.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you.